Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am excited about this in-person school year. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am already exhausted by this in-person school year. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Cabin Fever Brown Ale from the New Holland Brewing Company. I'm really growing into my like, internal appreciation for brown ales. I do like them. It's a part of who I am. Well, it's got a mild smell. New Holland, these are the folks who make your uh, standby favorite. Yes, this is an alternative of the Dragon's Milk Stout. So maybe more towards your uh, your um, region of preferred palate. We'll find out. So what are we doing today, you? State standards set the expectations for what teachers teach in the classroom, but we should continue to examine who is represented in those standards and who is erased. We read a study of state civic standards to analyze where indigenous nations are represented. We learned from these examples to see how to explicitly include indigenous nations in instruction. Later, we read a study of how teacher responsiveness is an essential tool for providing equitable instruction in classrooms. What role do teachers have to use their agency to change the classroom experience to better align to what students need? Let's get started. Before we start, I'd like to say that I work and live on the ancestral lands of the Kanza, Kickapoo, and Osage. These peoples continue to work and live here in the Midwest. And today, I learned Kansas, the state in which I have lived and taught my entire life, makes no mention of indigenous nations anywhere in its civic standards. I'm reflecting on my role as an educator on these lands, what part I have played in indigenous erasure in my classroom, and what I can do to disrupt erasure moving forward. For our first segment, we read, Standardizing Indigenous Erasure, a Tribal Crit and Quant Crit Analysis of K-12 U.S. Civics and Government Standards. This was written by Leilani Sebzalian, Sarah Shear, and Jimmy Snyder in Theory and Research in Social Education. Published in 2021. So uh, as I was reading this, and for those people that have been listening, clearly Ralph has some things to say about this topic based on that land acknowledgement you used to kick off the show. As I was reading this, I was reflecting that in the past, you have done me a favor and uh, scheduled or slated several mental health centric articles, which is something that's a flag that I carry in my classroom. And when I was reading this, I was like, this is nice because I know that this is something that you have addressed as a priority in your professional life for some time as well. And it was satisfying for me to say, oh yeah, of course, of course, it's about time that this has become a central segment, that it's got its own segment. So I was happy and satisfied to have that experience. Yeah. Cheers. That that makes me feel great. That yeah. makes me feel seen. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Yeah, uh, I, I did. I queued this paper because I actually saw it across my, my roll across my social media feed uh, because I follow Dr. Subzalian uh, on uh, social media because I am a developing researcher who uses Quantcrit. And so um, when I think it, I think she was directly um, publicizing this new this new paper that she and her team had out. 
And uh, I was really excited to read it because we've talked about um, anti-colonial education and decolonizing education before, uh, but being able to talk about it in the context of standards and U.S. civics uh, made me feel great to be able to put this into a particular context because I am a certified U.S. government and history teacher, and I don't get to use that on this podcast nearly as often as I'd like. There's so much here. There's so much in this. And uh, learning about the sovereignty of Native nations is the necessary step for non-Indigenous students to become neighbors with legitimacy. That quote, neighbors with legitimacy, uh, is very uh, resonant to me. It was a powerful phrase to present early in the document. Because I think that there are a lot of popular narratives that look at other people that way without recognizing we ourselves should perhaps consider ourselves that way. Yeah, there was, I agree. There was like each section of the paper is worthy of its own podcast episode. Um, the, the opening lines, I think, were a powerful invocation for the importance of this kind of work. Look at the nature of nationhood for, for um, indigenous nations. And they use that word very intentionally because um, if you look at state standards or curricular materials or whatever, um, you even heard me just now have to catch myself wanting to use the term tribe or group or something else. And so the nature of nationhood and the sovereignty that comes with it is an essential piece of what we need to be teaching all students, both indigenous and non-indigenous students. Uh, they pointed out that there are about 600 recognized indigenous nations uh, within the within the borders of the United States, and those are just those that are recognized by the United by the United States government, and that there are plenty more who are nations and have nationhood that is just not recognized by the federal government yet. And so there are this affects a tremendous number of people in the United within the the lands claimed by the United States today, right now. The and there are two like simultaneous things that could come in from that from where I feel like we've opened. Um, and the first one, I, don't know, I think I'm going to go here just because we we not too long ago had a had an episode that was looking really um, with great focus on issues of race and racism in the United States. And so situating uh, situating colonialism in U.S. education um, and racism in education because they are not the same thing. Um, they are related. They they inform one another. Uh, white supremacy and uh, colonialism um, mutually reinforce one another, but they are not the same thing. And especially in curriculum and in curricular discussions and even in some of the um, political domains where standards are being discussed, race and racism is getting a lot more discussion and consideration than colonialism. And so this paper was coming in to, um, to address the relative silence uh, regarding colonialism in U.S. education, U.S. education standards. Yeah, I'm having a hard time talking about this, not because there isn't a whole lot to talk about, because there is. But part of me just wants to say, go read this paper, <laughs> right? Like, um, uh, one, you know, I mean, I don't know that they necessarily uh, address this aspect of colonialism directly in this particular paper, but speaking for others or 
assuming that we can omit the voice of others is a part of colonialism. And so uh, the things in this paper need to be said and who am I to say them? It's kind of the struggling position that I'm currently at right now. Um, and uh, But, you know, it is a podcast and we read research and talk about it. We're supposed to discuss research. So I should discuss this research because that's what I'm here to do. Uh, cheers. Uh, but I'm... I, I'm having a tr I'm having a hard time deciding where to begin and what to say. That was the other thing in my notes that I that I that I had to to reference was uh, I think alongside that the authors also lay out there is some tension in talking about whether indigenous governance and indigenous sovereignty is being considered in the state standards which are a part of the governmental apparatus of the colonizing United States and so I say well if we're going to if we're going to analyze um, erasure or representation of indigenous governments in the colonial government. It are we are we still playing into the colonial machine that is doing harm in the first place? And they and they gave that some real what I thought was um, uh, honest consideration and airtime in their in their article while laying out that it, that it is an opportunity for activism and for allyship. Um, and so, and so they went ahead and did this work, but they recognize that tension, which I think is an important part of these, these critical frameworks that they use, that tribal crit and quant crit are both about um, looking closely at the methods and acknowledging when there are tensions and discussing them and raising them for the reader so that we can have, so you and I can have this conversation. Yeah, in their methods of inquiry section, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they, they kind of uh, establish that because the established power structures speak in numbers, we too are going to speak in that language so that we can challenge those established power structures. So uh, I feel like we need to frame, if, if briefly, uh, standards. Yeah, uh, even the standards, man, I, even the standards discussion I wrestled with in this. Some of the, not, I, I don't, some of the assumptions and characteristics of standards you know, kind of implied a relationship that I, even I am uncomfortable with in terms of being a 10th year per career educator. My relationship to standards is complicated. Oh gosh, I don't, this is what I took away from their uh, uh, depiction of standards is that they're established by some, um, some facet of the government and then they guide the priorities of teachers um, who then have an obligation to pursue those standards in their classrooms. And so if the standards incidentally omit, that's gonna to contribute to erasure because the teachers are not gonna prioritize those discussions in the classroom. And if the standards uh, specifically include, then that's gonna be a compulsion for teachers to include these uh, discussions uh, in the classroom. Uh, and so the standards themselves have a powerful uh, influence for all students to understand uh, colonial power structures and also uh, represent uh, students that are present in our classrooms. Standards are a state concern in the United States. Uh, there are not there are not federally federal standards. They there aren't. So disabuse yourself of that myth if you think that there are. The federal government is not telling you what to teach. Uh, the states make those decisions, and so uh, in each individual state, uh, some of them take take uh, 
take a broader standards framework and directly uh, adopt it for themselves, whether it be Common Core or National uh, Next Generation Science Standards or whatever else. Uh, some of them take those standards and modify them slightly. Some of them write their own standards from scratch. Um, it, and it has changed over time. Uh, but the, the researchers in this article said, if we want to understand how states are expecting teachers and classrooms to teach civics, then we're going to have to look at each individual state's accepted standards to see what they are telling their teachers they are going to be held accountable for teaching. And so that has that's really different from state to state. So some of them have updated their standards very recently. Some of them have not updated their standards very recently. Uh, some of them have highly detailed standards with examples for how to teach those concepts. Uh, some of them have not very detailed standards without examples for how to teach those concepts. And so um, they looked across all 50 states and the District of Columbia uh, and analyzed what they said about civics specifically. So in their, um, this is distinct from like history where there's some, has been some existing work that's looked at how indigenous erasure or um, representation has occurred in history standards. Uh, but this study was looking specifically at civics instruction, which I think is really timely given some of the some of the discussions and debates around I'm going to air quotes and say critical race theory because we don't all mean the same thing when we say that. Uh, but the when we say we should be teaching students how to be citizens, they said, how are we asking teachers to teach students about citizenship? And how is that including or erasing their understanding of the indigenous nations as a part of that uh, developing schema? I'm, th I'm thinking about the concerns of an individual classroom teacher. And generally, I did not have any control over the standards as a classroom teacher. Yeah. Even though I had a remarkable amount of control over what I did in my classroom. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction because if my state standards are not where they need to be, this paper would be really useful to be able to reinterpret those standards in a way that rejects erasure and it said insists upon representation. Like we are working at lots of le levels here. This paper takes the the standard state standard level approach, but as a practicing classroom teacher, I know that even I and you know, maybe I should cover the mic in case some somebody at my district leadership is listening. I look at those standards as a menu for me to choose from. I do not prioritize every single standard and I don't like make sure we discuss every standard in my classroom. I highlight ones that I think are achievable and important. And then I spend a lot of time with my students to develop mastery on those standards, which means we do not get through all of them in a school year. Uh, and um, that may be a sore point, but I still feel that that is true. So as a classroom teacher, deciding how to implement what is important in my classroom is something that I got to struggle with. And I don't think if I were a social studies teacher, I don't think I would, I would need this kind of discussion to be explicitly in the standards for me to choose to include it. I think I can do that autonomously. And though we can be critical of the Kansas standards for not including uh, Native nations explicitly, one of the interesting things about the Kansas social studies standards is that they are just universally broad. And, as, and I tried to look up 
civic standards, and I didn't find any specific civic standards, but the government and social studies standards are choices have consequence, individuals have rights and responsibilities, societies are shaped by identities, beliefs, practices, and individuals and groups, societies experience continuity and change, and relationships among people, places, ideas, and environments are dynamic. Which means you can contextualize all five those of all five of those while acknowledging native nations at period. any period. Yeah, like choices have consequences. Yep. Uh, individuals have rights and responsibilities. Yep. Like you just, the checks are so bold and, and strong that as an individual teacher, there are so many avenues that one could choose to exhibit, to, to be a proponent of these standards while acknowledging Kansas native nations. And I think that's, that's what the authors very, very explicitly said early on in their paper was they're not here to, they're not, their intent in this paper was not to, to list or to rank states, but to lay out the realities of where we are in the standards. And then also to foreground the examples of what is being done well as a model for teachers to be allies in making improvements so anyway, so but from 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 a teacher standpoint, because the, we tape this show and we think about our shoulds from the standpoint of one teacher with one classroom, right? And in that case, even if I think about in Kansas, like in in the district where I taught, we had district standards, and those were taken very closely from the state standards, but they were not identical. And especially in this kind of a setting where the standards are pretty um, pretty general, pretty broad, I would imagine I don't know off the top of my head what my stand the standards were for civics education in the district. I didn't teach civics, right. uh, but uh, I would imagine that there are going to be plenty of cases where civics teachers have standards and that erasure, because they spent an entire section of the paper talking about subtle erasure. So even though, even though there are examples where it's not being explicitly erased in the state standards, there are lots of other mechanisms between the state and the actual students um, where more processes of erasure and marginalization happen. And so if I am one teacher, I can say, okay, whatever the standards are to which I am beholden, whether they be the state standards, whether they be uh, district standards, whether they be an individual department with one teacher who imposes upon me a set of lesson plans, whatever it is, I have some, some number of constraints. And I'm going to wager the vast majority of folks in those positions can find at least one opportunity where talking about civics education with students presents an opportunity that has historically been missed to include indigenous nations in the discussion of how nations and governments operate. Um, was it um, Oklahoma, Washington, Wyoming, and Montana that included, included discussions with native nations directly to develop standards to be included? Because those, I, those, I think those were my other four. That, I, that was the star that like, you know, ask the nations themselves what they need people to know about their sovereignty. And uh, it, it seems Which like is, the right thing to do, right? Yeah, it, agreed. And that's a, so, and I'm still thinking about from an individual classroom perspective, that that is itself something that we need to be thoughtful about because it is not exclusively the work of the oppressed to address the problems of oppression. And so if I'm an individual classroom teacher and I have the inclination to email uh, an indigenous scholar and say, tell me how to fix my curriculum. Mm. 
don't do that. Don't send that email. Uh, there's plenty of material that exists to help you revise your curriculum. And if you come to a place where you are in relationship with, an indig- with indigenous scholars and indigenous communities, and they're in a place where they have things to say to you, shut your mouth and listen. Yeah. But you've got to balance. Like if they don't email you back, that does not give you license to say, well, if I tried now, it's not my problem. It is not the job of indigenous nations to teach us. It's our job to learn it, especially by papers like this. Like they yeah. wrote this paper. They didn't have time to come talk to us this weekend. So we can sit here and read it all by ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and so I just I'm going to repeat. Yeah, everybody should read this paper. It's a great paper. And so to be thoughtful about representing voices and making spaces for for indigenous scholars, indigenous leaders, indigenous people to have space and contribute to conversations is something that should and must happen and needs to happen better. But that is not the same thing that it is exclusively their job to fix this problem. Uh, so one of the things I mentioned that they, the the authors laid out some examples of s- methods of subtle erasure. And I think that's something that's worth looking at because those are things that can pop up in any individual classroom, regardless of what the state standards show up, set, say or require. And so it's something that really prompted me to look more closely at how I use language and how I present material um, or how I think about presenting material in a classroom. And so uh, so I'd like to I'd like to think for a minute about what are the mechanisms of subtle erasure that they laid out in the paper. Uh, one is uh, avoiding the term nation, uh, you know, sort of uh, downgrading to tribe or group or um, culture or uh, some other term to address an association where nation has a strong um, we rule ourselves context, whereas group does not necessarily have the same context. So if we are systemically choosing uh, words, if we're systemically choosing language that removes the concept of self-governance in reference to those peoples, uh, we informally downgrade them from a nation to just some folks. And the, the, the term for that is uh, colonial normativity. It's that words mean things and words shape the way that we think about them and they shape the way that students think about them. And so it's not, it is an issue of semantics. And what I'm arguing is that semantics matter yeah. is what I'm saying. And so the, regardless of what the standards say, we choose the words that we're using in the classroom every day. And we choose the words that we allow in our classrooms every day. And so if a student refers to a tribe, we can ask, why are you calling that group a tribe? Why are you not calling them a nation? What are the implications of the differences between those things? And you know what? That sounds like pretty compelling civics education. What are the differences? What does it mean to address them as a nation? What are the implications of that about their sovereignty? What is the What are the implications of using nation in recognizing our obligations as United States citizens uh, to the treaties we have made with that nation. The insistence on using correct and precise language demands a level of correct and precise and honest thinking about each individual student's relationship with nations that live uh, near them. Uh, the the one that, uh, that, I, that I bring up a lot and I brought up a lot in teacher preparation was uh, the positioning of native nations in curricula because they found this was true in in history curriculum and in history standards and it's true again in civics that it's really common 
to talk about and think about native nations as historical entities. We think about indigenous people and we think about them in the context of the 1700s. We think about them in the context of Western expansion. And we don't talk about them enough as people who live with us right now. We don't talk about them as nations who exist and govern themselves and have goals and serve their citizens today. I think it's inconvenient to do so uh, from a power dynamic because to acknowledge their existence today must acknowledge uh, the descendants of colonists as colonists today. Uh, we moved here, but now it's ours. And that is, that's the tension. And so if we just avoid that language, we do not have to face that tension. And they are striving for resurgence now. So choosing to ignore the work of native nations now is a choice and a choice that comes with consequences because native nations have goals now. They uh, are supporting the um, efforts of their citizens and the best interests of their people now. And so choosing to ignore that is a choice that has impacts for, for them, for people now. So at the end, like in the conclusion section of this, they discuss some resistance to acknowledging tribal sovereignty in the education system. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to, we're not supposed to rank states, but Arizona, uh, talking about tribal sovereignty is too dangerous for education in Arizona. Uh, that sounds like garbage to me. Um, uh, if you're like, if, if you're sitting here listening, saying this is a really complicated issue and I don't know how I feel about it, the concept of anti-colonialism is simply accepting that conquering others to get more stuff is evil. That is it. That is what anti-colonialism is. The idea that conquer if you if you believe that conquering others to get more stuff is evil, you are anti-colonialist. I am anti-colonialist. I think conquering people to get more stuff is evil. And whether that stuff is knowledge or gold or silver or um, oil, or whatever, I think it's evil. And when we really interrogate what living out that belief looks like across the strata of education and civics education in particular, to work out that belief, we must recognize, we must represent, and we must teach indigenous nationhood, indigenous sovereignty, indigenous contemporary presence. Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read teacher responsiveness that promotes equity in secondary science classrooms. This was uh, written by Hosen Kong in Cognition and Instruction. Published in 2021. We care about responsiveness. That's a shared priority you and I have. Um, is we think that being a responsive teacher in a classroom space and being re responsive to students specifically is a part of both of our practice. And so when there was a study that looked really closely at what it looks like to do responsiveness 
I got pretty excited about that. And so I queued it up. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about my job recently and how different teachers might view their job differently. I, I've come to accept that the way I define my job, I am to present and become the stimuli in the classroom that promotes my students' cognitive, social, emotional, and scholastic development. Now, if that's the case, I need to respond to their behaviors to become that stimuli. Oh, sorry, I'm like emoting super hard over here because um, I wrote down a quote. Like I was reading this paper frantically because I was short on time because that's just what my life is right now. And so I was reading it just as quick as I could. And I was like, I was making my notes and whatever. And then I got like halfway through the paper and just stopped like dead in my tracks because uh, she made a statement uh, in the middle of laying out that instruction happens within a learning environment a learning ecosystem and that we play a role as instructors, all of the learners play roles uh, as autonomous learners with agency within the environment that the classroom matters. And there, there are so many swirling things, but I'm going to read this quote for you that just stopped me. It said, the classroom teacher who is one key component of the activity system can influence students opportunities to learn by changing the characteristics of that system. And like, that stopped me because that really feels like it encapsulates so much of what it means to, to lean into our responsibility to be responsive. If something isn't working, it's our system. At the end of the day, this system is ours. So if something is bad or wrong or unproductive, change it. Yeah. Our role and our is to leverage our agency in the classroom to change it. And that just hit me in the right way at the right moment, because what do we do when we accept that our job is to change the environment using the agency we have to promote students' opportunities to learn and specifically to address historical inequities in who has invited, been invited to learn so that we can then make space for all students to learn? It felt great. So I, I, it felt great. Uh, yeah, I have be as a teacher, I have become more and more conscientious of at least noting to myself when I'm choosing not to respond. I think that in my early years of the teacher, there's, it's so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. Um, those first few years of teaching, the constant bombardment of decisions. And even, even in those first few years when you're teaching, even if you can recognize that you're being bombarded with decisions, your ability to assess which decisions are more or less critical or more or have more or less agency is terrible. Like you, you may, this is really important. And you go all in on something that really has very little consequence. And then on the other hand, there's like, um, uh, you're flipping about something that was absolutely life-changing to to a particular student, right? And so you don't know, you don't know what you don't know what's important. You don't know what the consequences are. You just know that you're juggling all of these decisions all of the time. Well, now that I'm in my tenth year, I'm actually engaging with that constant bombardment of decisions in an entirely different way. Um, 
I'm recognizing, uh, I'm sort of more, you know, the, the idiom, you know, choose your fights, right? Choose your battles uh, is, is pretty common. Like, you know, pick your battles, right? Uh, but being able to do that with a, a better conscience, conscientiousness, uh, a better understanding of what, um, what the consequences of your decisions are uh, is really uh, uh, um, satisfying. Um, and recognizing that this is, this is a choice that I could make that will yield this tree of decisions. And then that is a choice that I could make that will yield that tree of decisions. And what do I want to be the most important for me and this student and this classroom right now? That's amazing and empowering and satisfying. And it doesn't happen if you're teaching from a script. Just throwing that in there because I, I can't help it. So the uh, one of the things that they point out early on is the role of responsiveness to addressing issues of equity in the classroom. Uh, because when students from historically marginalized groups begin to participate in a classroom and they are inevitably sharing epistemologies and sharing ways of being that are unfamiliar to the teacher or unanticipated by a curriculum that is narrowly focused on the needs, wants, and past experiences of a dominant group. Those non-canon ideas, um, when teachers are not responsive, are pushed to the margins. They are dismissed as wrong. They are discarded as unuseful. Or even in a more generous interpretation, they are, they're not leveraged in the same way, if for no other reason than because the teacher doesn't know how to leverage them. Yeah, That's really valuable, and I have no idea what to do with it. Yeah. Uh, this, um, when they were doing their coding of the teacher behavior, well, for those of you that care about design, um, one teacher was followed over the course of two years over a series of six lessons that were really intensely coded decision makings there were there were over 600 decision points and then there were different categories of responses it was actually and then there was both recording the things uh coding from a video of the teachers teaching and then also coding of a post inter post 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 teaching interview it was that the teacher made decisions and they coded these on three levels in the moment decisions lesson level decisions and unit level decisions and so when we're talking about being responsive we're not just talking about the student says something and you give a response because one of the things about this study was that um there has actually a lot of research about the teachers in the classroom, the student says or does this, and the teacher responds that way. But this study kind of uh, kind of opens up a broader understanding about, about what responsive teaching means, and that it's not just how do you uh, give feedback to a student in the moment, how do you respond to a student in the moment, but also how do you change what you're doing at, at a lesson level, and how you change what you're doing at a um, unit level, which just, again, further challenges scripted curriculum. Because if you're changing, like, maybe maybe we can say, okay, well, yeah, when you're having a personal interaction with the student in the moment, that can't be scripted, but your lessons can be. Well, this is kind of suggesting they shouldn't. And then your units also, and, and I'm going to be honest, I, I, I've got 
I am proud of myself for how I respond to my students in the moment. I'm proud of myself for how I respond to my students in the lesson. But you know what? I'm still operating from a concrete unit perspective. I really am. I am. Tenth year in, and I am still saying this is the unit, and it is the boundary of my sound sandbox. Uh, and that, I did not recognize that about myself until I had read this paper. When it just said, no, you can, you can respond at all kinds of levels of responsiveness. Like, well, crap. Now I have, well, or, or, or alternatively, yay, I have a whole new identified area of growth for me to consider. You know, we're not saying that you shouldn't have units and that we just talk about whatever. Refusing to allow a unit's progression and the recognized and valued contributions within that content domain to be responsive to student contributions is necessarily going to marginalize students who did not originally preconceivably making the contributions that they would. And so this really goes back to one of those early refrains from the show of know your student. Oh, I had that on. I had that. I was going to say that too. What I was going to say is that in the interviews, when they're coding the interviews, we get a lot more than they got just from the video. Because when a student respond, when the teacher throws out something and the student responds and then the teacher responds to the student, you know, we can do a little like in the moment analysis of the teacher was scaffolding this idea and prompting the student for this response. But when we get the post interview, we can say, and also I know that the student outside of class is dealing with X and Y and Z. And we're getting a much broader understanding of the actual humanizing pedagogy that is going into these details, that it's not just the cognitive journey that the student is taking from the intellectual wrestling with his ideas, but the teacher is also considering a lot of the stresses and outside influences and obligations and challenges and celebrations and, 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 uh, um, accolades and all these other things that are happening for this student outside of the classroom, which is uh, fantastic that it gets acknowledged in this way, because that is, that is humanizing pedagogy and recognizing that your student is more than they're wrestling with this academic concept. And so I appreciate um, the author lays out that uh, some definitions of responsibility or responsiveness early. And a couple of them, I think, are salient to understand what that looks like, especially from the lens of being responsive in the pursuit of equity in the classroom. Um, the, the teacher's job is to in interpret classroom situations with race power and opportunities to learn in mind. So they, that necessarily means teachers have to engage in a journey of interrogating their position and the role of race and power dynamics in their classrooms. You've got to understand them to be able to recognize them in your classrooms. And then once you have the ability to understand and recognize to then take actions in response to what you are recognizing to increase opportunities to learn. And it would be very reasonable if we're trying to pursue shoulds to say, respond how Michael, and their table two, I feel like we always point out table two. Like if we're ever going to point out a table, it's always the second table in the paper. But the second table gives us some concrete codes for the kinds of things that the teacher in this study did to address uh, the types of pedagogical actions she took to be responsive in the pursuit of instructional equity. The how, if you would. And that list is really good. 
I want to read it. I want to just read it. Read it. She did things like modifying task design, adding, removing, or changing the use of tools or scaffolds, modifying the type and nature of talk, move, and or questions, adjusting norms and expectations of what is okay and appropriate in their classroom, and modifying participation structure. Change the system. Yeah. In my 20s, I studied Hapkido. And when individuals are earning their black belt, they, they at the school that I attended, they had to give a, a statement of philosophy, which was basically they had to perform a speech about their relationship with the art. And when I was a young color belt, one of the participants gave a speech where they said their practice was like having a block of wood and then they had a knife they were using to whittle away the corners to try to turn it into a sphere and that they were never going to succeed at creating a sphere but they were going to they're going to continue to try to do that over and over and over again and i really liked that concept and i have held on to that and used it over and over and over again as a um way to drive myself toward an ideal that I knew could never be perfectly reached. And when I was an early teacher, uh, one of the ways that I managed the overwhelming number of decisions that I had to make is that I would establish patterns, routines, and protocols at the beginning of the year, and then I would execute them through the year, and then I wouldn't change them during the year. I would wait till the end of the year, and then I would say, these are the protocols, routines, and expectations that I'm going to change for the following year. And that year got better. And then I would stick with them and change them again for the following year. Uh, but as I have become more comfortable with my developing sphere, I can whittle those corners. I don't have to wait till the next year to whittle those corners. I can change those routines practices um, and expectations every single day if they need to be changed. That's, that's the key, is that I now have the capacity and comfort to say, yep, what we're doing, suboptimal. I can make this improvement. I can make it holistically. I do not have to wait. I can do it now. Um, and that is uh, empowering and satisfying. And I know you gotta, be, you gotta be comfortable with your agency and your expectations and obligations and comfortable with your mistakes and failures to be at that place. But uh, every single time I can make one of those change, I get closer to that sphere that I'm going for and it brings me closer to professional peace, right? Just the journey of being able to make that, that, that little one strike on the sphere uh, closer to, a, to that, to that ideal that I'm pursuing uh, makes me happy. And I don't have to wait until the end of the year to do that. I can do it right now today so that tomorrow looks different than today does. And that is empowering. Empower each other. Anyway, how was the beer?
I enjoyed the beer. This is a brown ale, and brown ales, as I've said, are a part of my person. They're a part of my soul. And this is, um, as far as like how I experienced the brown ale, it's pretty typical. I, looking at it, it's it's a little darker than I would have measured it against the others, but um, it's got a little bit of a, like a syrupiness to it. It's a little bit, um, I'm going to say, not quite sweeter, maybe. Um, but as far as like flavors, I don't know. I'm not getting that much. I'm also a little bit of a lightweight these days. Yeah, I think that, I think I agree. It's a little thicker. And uh, I was, I had a mute, I, I noted a muted smell early. And I, I also feel like it's a muted taste. Um, it's a tiny bit bitter, but it's not, it's fine. It's not a problem. We're really enjoying being back together for season number five. Remember that this is better together. So if you have things you want us to read or thoughts you think you want to share with us, we'd love to engage with you on social media, on our website, Two Pint PLC. If we're wrong about any of this episode, let us know because we want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.